Ogilv Nanagus. Part two. You started working on the translations as soon as you could. Mm-hmm. Can I ask sort of how long maybe that process took? Is that a, a difficult question to answer? <laughs> well, the main part of the translation, let's put it that way, that took, I don't know, not, not too long. The texts are not very... Uh, not very long that just took a few days Um, but in both texts there were difficulties so Mm. that that took years Um, I'm not sure I've solved all of the difficulties Uh, (laughs) one of them the chair of our department gave a solution for but that was in I think 2011 uh, and I started my PhD in uh, 1998 so quite a few years later. So what what are those kind of the, the difficulties, the points that take years to resolve? What, can you give us an example of the kind of difficulties you encountered? Um, well, mostly just na- or, well uh, words that were very difficult to interpret. So in the oldest text, uh, there is a line, Foreich Lindwine Komair, and the, word, the words Komair uh, yeah. are very difficult to imp- interpret because they're, um, the word Bayer is weird. So I couldn't figure it out. So I was looking at uh, Boire, which uh, is a flow um, Mm -hmm. uh, of a river or also uh, of of diarrhea and things like that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So you get you get to the craziest places when you do this kind of research. Yeah. Um, uh, So looking at Komor, you you have to when you do this kind of thing, you have to try and come up with any possible thing. So you have to realize that in manuscripts very often you won't have things like length marks so Mm. you have to look at all the possibilities with length mark and without length mark and you know misspellings and um it took me forever and then um uh, it turned out that it might just be um uh, in the end uh, a short dative um so a particular case of this word that means anger uh, so okay. uh, lin uh, rises against them uh, against them uh, with anger yeah. uh, which p- fits perfectly in, yeah, in the yeah. context uh, yeah so th- th- there's a certain process of kind of expanding and seeing you know the all the potentials of what mm-hmm. this particular word could mean yes. and then kind of trying to make sense of it as well within yeah. the context and the meaning mm-hmm. of the story as a whole. Definitely, yes. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very, uh, if you're not used to it, it can be uh, a bit daunting at first because uh, what I see with students, for example, when I give them yeah. manuscript text is that um, they don't think of the fact that the length mark is often missing. So they forget sure. to look at all of these, you know, these possibilities. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely, that can make it quite difficult. And often in, in early texts as well, the problem is that the language itself is very terse, a very uh, abbreviated style very often. Yeah. So that can make interpreting the text quite difficult as well. Mm. Uh, an interesting one, all right, that yeah, the, the, the further you go on in time, the more kind of flowery and um, full of adjectival language uh, the text becomes and that does make the interpretation easier in a lot of senses although it can be difficult to produce a good translation because you're going you could translate these three terms all with one English word so now I have to think of three different English words definitely definitely (laughs) and then when you get into the um, adjectival madness like the Irish Arthurian (laughs) literature that's just yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's quite special (laughs) so once you've got your your basic translation Mm -hmm. um what's the process then of getting that to actually a a published edition that you're that that 
fulfills all the requirements right. of well, the published text. Um, uh, you have to add a number of things. So uh, mm-hmm. a discussion, well, there are actually no guidelines for this, but I think think this should be in there and and this is commonly done nowadays I should say yeah um so an introduction kind of placing the text in um in a tradition so um uh, for example there are a number of different traditions relating to the origin of Loch one of the traditions has to do with Finn McCool for example oh yeah um it's kind of important to see uh in what tradition it's set and what uh other texts having to do with uh, the eruption of Loch there are uh, connecting it with Echu, for example. Yeah. Um, so just placing it in a in a context, um, mm-hmm. then describe the manuscripts in which you uh, you find the text and mm-hmm. comparing them together. So what are the main differences and why do you think one manuscript is better than uh, than the other? You have to discuss the the meter of the poetry in it, sure. um, and date a text, which is um, uh, quite difficult to do. Um, sure. Uh, it's it's hampered by the fact that there's just it's almost impossible to very accurately date uh, a text um, because so many texts are uh, anonymous. So the second text, uh, which is late Old Irish or early Middle Irish uh, or later Middle Irish sections of it, the problem with that is that it's there is no list that we have that says, you know, this feature in the language came in at... I don't know, 953. Sure. Uh, you know, so you can try and and, uh, and narrow it down a bit, but it's it's quite difficult. And sure. you can look at uh, different things as well. You Obviously, you look at outside things. So are there references in other texts that you can date yeah. uh, to this particular text? Or, um, you know, what manuscript is it in? Because yeah. it has to have been written before then, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, and then you look at indications in a text. So, for example, are there are there characters that uh, that you can date? For example, is a king mentioned that died in a certain year? Yeah. Uh, because that helps as well. Um, uh, and then the the linguistic features. But like I said, those are very important. But they're they're quite can be quite difficult to to pin down in a certain sure. time. Um, but after you've done that, um, you um, you explain what type of edition you make, yes. um, and uh, you present your your text in a way that uh, that you find appropriate. Can yeah. it differs a little bit per text, sure. um, as I think your manner of edition should also depend on the type of text that you edit. Yeah. Um, and then you give uh, important variant readings. Yeah. Uh, from from other manuscripts. So things that are really different is a different word used, for example, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, uh, and then you give the translation as well. I, I prefer to have the text on one side and a translation on another side. Yeah, the facing page translation. Right, exactly. Um, and I can then, understand are, are great for people actually reading it, but when you're trying to um, put it through the computer and optical character recognition, it could oh be a little bit tricky. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine, yes. <laughs> but anyway, so you've got your facing page translation. Yep, and, um, and then uh, you give uh, textual notes. Um, mm-hmm. And those notes are usually on on things that are unclear in the text. So basically the purpose is to make the text understandable for the people sure. reading it. Yes. Um, and sometimes there are multiple interpretations or there might be uh, a play on words or yeah. a location that's not known now but is referred to in other texts, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so just those elements that can elucidate the text for yeah. uh, for the audience uh, or, or unclear elements, those are explained. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you you make your uh, uh, your indices. Um, and I I always like to have the um, uh, a manuscript transcription as close as possible to the to the manuscript in it. Yeah. You know, as well um, for the people who want to 
you know, look at exactly what the text appeared like, but might not have done paleography or something like that. Yeah, that's that's a huge amount of work um, to go into it. So um, this was effectively, this is your PhD mm-hmm. thesis to start with. Um, so how did it then turn into a lovely green hardback Irish <laughs> Tech Society edition? How, how I am um, one to the other. Well, I I thought I thought it would be um, would be nice to publish it and so mm-hmm. have it available to a general, you know, to more people. Yeah. Um, so I contacted the Irish Tech Society yeah. and said, this is what I did uh, and I would love to edit it. Might you be interested in yeah. uh, in publishing the book? Yeah. Um, and they got back to me and said, yes. So right. um, uh, so then I just try to rework there. Usually when you write your PhD, there might be sections that are uh, uh, overly long. Sure. <laughs> uh, so you you cut those out uh, and, and kind of simplify it a bit and then add uh, add different things as well that you didn't have time to or discovered since yeah because this always happens you hand in your phd and then you know you find relevant literature yes later yeah um, <laughs> so so you can add that based on, on on research that you have done uh you've done since yeah um and just you know make it make it more presentable it depends a little bit on what you've done uh before for your edition uh mm-hmm. you know the type of changes that you have to make um, it can be reasonably close to what you've done before. Um, and it's interesting because in Ireland, they you don't automatically publish your your uh, PhD. But in, for example, the Netherlands, that's usually what happens. So you finish your PhD and it's published. OK. Um, so you don't actually look for a different uh, a publisher on, okay. you know, by yourself. The university of- would do it then, would they? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's usually as part of the process. OK. Right, that's that's an interesting difference, all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there any kind of uh, copyright issues that come into that? Um, not, uh, not really. Um, you you have to make sure that you contact the the libraries, of course, um, yeah. uh, whose manuscripts you're transcribing, and ask them permission uh, to do so because. Uh, they might not allow more than a few lines or something like that. So okay. if you do that, always make sure to contact the, the libraries and say, I'm working on a scholarly edition of uh, this and this text. Uh, I want yeah. to publish it. Mm-hmm. Um, am I allowed to? And usually uh, I don't think it's that much of an issue if it's um, uh, unless it's perhaps in, in um, you know, in private ownership. Yeah. Um, if you want to add uh, pictures of the uh, of the manuscript mm. that would be more of a uh, well it wouldn't really be an issue you can yeah you, you'd have to ask permission and usually you pay a fee or something like that for the uh, the image to appear in the uh, in the edition itself yeah did you have any in yours no I do not yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> okay so I'm going to ask you now a some more general questions and um, first of all to in your role as a teacher um, when students start studying with you now this is undergrads specifically I think uh-huh. um, what kind of ideas or preconceptions about either medieval literature ancient literature Irish literature do they have what have you encountered in your fresh students <laughs> It uh, it depends a little bit because um, mm. it depends on how the students approach the uh, the subject. So there are students who who know quite a bit uh, already yeah. because they've read texts uh, about it or yeah. um, uh, they've looked a little bit at the language mm. um, or have been on vacation in Ireland or something like that. Right. Um, but there are uh, there are always well not always but often uh, there are a few students there um, uh, who might 
in the beginning, you know, think that uh, Irish literature has to do everything with fairies and druids and is, is very yeah. um, kind of romantic and things like that. And, and sure. uh, you know, the whole mystical neo Celtic neo medieval thing that yeah. happens these days, um, but usually when they have uh, two weeks of language classes, they, they <laughs> disappear a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, we 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 always try when um, there are always open days for for prospective students to come sure. in um, and um, you know look at what we do and things like that, um, and then usually we try to tell them that it's it's really a serious topic of study, kind of like. Uh, Latin and Greek classical sure. studies yeah. uh, that's very comparable to that um, mm. uh, so we'll show them uh, a part of the language and, and, and discuss a little bit what it's about so sure. um, uh, it's usually people will know at least a little bit about that by the time they um, they end up with us um, yeah. and it also I think it might also uh, uh, help that our uh, focus is on the medieval period so medieval yeah. Welsh and medieval Irish mm -hmm. um, so we tend to get a very specific type of student sure. um, who, are, who are interested in um, the Middle Ages and in languages in general. Okay, yeah. And uh, about how many students um, start the course each year? Um, it depends a little bit. Um, we uh, uh, Up to about two years ago, we used to have between 12 and 18 students. Yeah. Um, and then uh, last year, we had, uh, we had less. We had about half that. Right. Um, and this year uh, we had uh, uh, nine at the beginning and we have eight now. Okay. Uh, there's been quite a bit of shuffling around because a number of uh, Celtic students disappeared. But then there were a number of students from um, um, uh, a general uh, arts and letters uh, yeah. studies that decided to transfer to Celtic studies. Oh, OK. Um, so we are at eight uh, now, but it's a usually a few students disappear throughout the year um, yeah. because they figure out that the they don't um, you know the languages aren't really their thing and sure I think yeah I think we'll probably keep these uh, these eight so around around I say eight to twelve roughly yeah. a year that's not bad at all the issue of you know class sizes in university is is a tricky one because once the uh, accountants see that you've got you know uh, students in single figures or you know in mm -hmm. less than 20 they go oh no one wants to do this course let's get rid of it yes so, yeah uh, it's a, it's that's a real uh, that's a real risk i think but we're also offering um lectures that have a for kind of a broader audience so we'll yeah. have introductory lectures on on history and literature and usually there'll be more students so especially the introduction course usually yeah. has around 55 students wow um and um uh, especially Irish history usually has a lot of students. So, yeah. um, I don't know, about 60, 70 students. Wow. I'm trying so, to imagine 60 or 70 Irish students going to a, an introduction to Dutch history. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't see it somehow. <laughs> no, no, maybe not. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there are, uh, we're working together also with them. Um, the English department. So there's now a course that's going to be on offer called Great Medieval Heroes, which I'm not teaching, okay. but um, uh, a colleague of mine um, uh, together with a colleague in the English department. So okay. that has 80 students now, I think. Wow. The problem is also getting people to know about the courses. Sure. Because, I mean, presumably when you're talking about students coming in from the school system, there isn't anything they might have done within 
their school curricula that no. would naturally kind of feed into it as, as a field of study. No, I think that's a real shame because I, yeah. think, uh, I think it would be great to uh, to offer especially Old Irish in mm. in secondary school as a you know as a challenging language for yeah. uh, for really good students, for example. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, people won't really have the the problem here is that people don't really know that the studies exist really exactly yeah, um, yeah and the problem is also that they don't really give much attention in uh, in history classes in secondary school to the celts or anything having to do with celtic so yeah. um uh, even though you know it was they were incredibly important yeah uh, in uh, you know in classical times and in the middle ages and they were all over europe yeah um, in holland as well but for some reason, uh, this always gets skipped over. The Romans always get a lot of attention and the sure. Greeks, but the Celts are usually um, usually left out. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm sure that's not only in uh, the Netherlands. I'm sure that happens all over Europe as well. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I'm pretty certain it happens within the English school system. Right. Because um, they, they don't realise that they're Celtic. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's an ongoing issue about, if you like, the general public awareness mm -hmm. of uh, Celtic studies and, and what's involved. But on the other hand, maybe that means that the students you get are really interested, very genuinely interested and committed mm -hmm. to actually learning it except for those few uh wafty ones that get weeded out quickly decided. <laughs> yes the ones we're actually really lucky because usually the students that we have are are very enthusiastic about the subject and yeah. are very active so very often right. they'll um spend their summers yeah. taking language courses or yeah. going over the dublin institute for advanced studies every once in a while has a summer yeah. school and they'll go there or things like that um right. they also have a student society uh, mm -hmm. where they organize loads of different things. So things from uh, uh, sword fighting uh, <laughs> uh, to Sean singing and um, things like that. So they'll get a, a teacher in and do that kind of thing. And they usually take a trip uh, to one of the um, uh, Celtic speaking countries. So uh, right. this year it was Scotland. Yeah. Uh, but they've been to Ireland before and Wales. And usually they try to go to one of the universities and sit in on a few lectures and things. Wow. Brilliant. Yeah. So we're very lucky. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose in Ireland and in the British Isles in general, we're terribly monocultural when it comes to language. Um, I, I would assume that Dutch students are a little bit more linguistically able when they mm -hmm. reach you than they would be over here. Um, they they are and they aren't. Well, <laughs> they are in the sense that they've had uh, multiple languages languages in school, so yeah. they have to take English as a as a subject mm. in secondary school, and they usually take uh, one other foreign language, so either German or French. You'll notice that the the grammatical knowledge or knowledge of grammatical terms, for example, yeah. um, has uh, uh, has declined uh, yeah. so that now at our university, there's a test that students have to take in the right at the beginning uh, to make sure that they're familiar with, uh, with these uh, terms. And if they're not, they get an extra uh, kind of course to help them. Right. Um, this is for all, all the uh, modern languages, so yeah. for French and English and, and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that we come across here as well, you know, is that lack of understanding of, mm -hmm. you know, grammar and syntax and, you know, the, the structure of language. Right, uh, right. And it depends because there are some students who've uh, who've been to a school where they've studied Greek and Latin before. Yeah. Uh, and that can be quite helpful. And yeah. students who've done German as well, it'll, it'll help you because in the case of Old Irish, there are grammatical cases. 
yeah. um, which you still have in modern Irish, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've seen them before in a different language, uh, that certainly helps because yeah. you know what it is. And uh, so ideally, um, a student would have seen uh, some of those languages. But even if they have not, uh, you know, as long as they are willing to put in the time, um, yeah. uh, usually they can um, uh, they can do all right. I want to sort of talk a bit more uh, about the general availability and the reliability of Irish texts that are currently in publication. Mm-hmm. Um, because you were saying about how, you know, some of your texts had previously been published, though not translated, mm-hmm. like Kunamar. Um, Do you see any gaps still remaining within uh, contemporary scholarship? And, um, you know, how easy is it to find an Irish text? Well, there are, um, I think, in in the last few years, there's been a lot of improvement in the sense that there's a lot more that's available um, online uh, uh, in terms of old editions that are yeah. that are out there. Um, unfortunately, the old editions, uh, these are usually editions that are out of copyright, so yeah. uh, usually early 1900s or, or even earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with those is that they're not always very reliable. Um, sure. So because they're not, you know, they didn't have any modern uh, modern dictionary uh, or dictionary of early Irish, which wasn't completed until uh, 1970, I think. Yeah. Um, started in the 1920s. Um, so those are not often very reliable. And of course, you also have to do with the, uh, the fact that some of the translators might have not been uh, willing to convey everything in the text. <laughs> so, for example, to give you an example, the, the yeah. story of Aydath Echach was translated by Stanish O'Grady in yeah. his work Silva Gedelica. Yeah. But uh, he completely avoided the, the urination of the horse. So <laughs> he says in his translation, the horse lies down okay. um, uh, but and, and doesn't urinate, but he stands up and there's a well all of a sudden. Okay. Um, so if you if you rely on those texts uh, because you do not know Irish or something like that, or you don't yeah. check the, the original Sure. Um, then you can miss uh, uh, a very important Absolutely. part of the story. <laughs> yes, um, and of course we we found this as well. Like you know, William St- or uh, Whitley Stokes's version or translation of Cathmega Thurid, which you know mm-hmm. leaves out all the best bits, all the stuff with the doctor and then the extorter, you know, yes. which of course is is some of the meatiest bits of the text. Yes, um, yes. It, are just glossed over. <laughs> and of course the Roscova. Yeah, uh, oh. you yourself looked at. Yes, I'm so, still um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's the problem is that the old editions are not very reliable. I think yeah. in um, nowadays um, a lot of editions uh, are coming out, and that's really great mm. um, because it makes it makes text much more accessible. So the Irish Text Society um, has released a number of uh, you know a number of titles and the Dublin mm. Institute and things like that, and um, and that's absolutely you know, crucial for uh, for uh, Irish studies in general, I think, because yeah. um, you have to know, have to have a decent overview of all of the texts in order to, to actually give, you know, interpretations about society and things like that. The problem is that a lot of the texts um, uh, have not been edited yet. So I know that there is a, a manuscript in Brussels um, that has not really been looked at. Uh, Liam Branagh uh, at the Dublin Institute has looked at some of the uh, poems in it, and yeah. Brianna Cueve has looked at a few of the poems in it, but yeah. the entire manuscript is composed of of old, middle, and modern Irish poetry, nice. um, and it's just there. Nobody has ever transcribed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just so, 
you know, it, it's sometimes frustrating in the sense that there's so much to do. Yeah. It's great on the other hand, because it means that uh, you'll never run out of things to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely vital to the, uh, you know, to the field of study that they're out there. But the problem these days is that editions uh, for the purpose of just editing texts yeah. uh, by funding bodies is not considered to be uh, extremely well interesting or <laughs> appealing so yeah. uh, so what people will often do is um, make an edition as part of a as part of a project sure. um, and I think a lot of PhD students um, are are doing are working on editions so yeah. Yeah. Uh, so those are great and yeah. if you can go to um, you know reliable publishers mm. uh, you'll you'll be able to find some good and also reliable translations it means that there is i feel like it's almost a, a double burden on modern scholarship there's the burden of republishing those older editions in a more mm -hmm. reliable context and a more complete uh, version mm -hmm. and then there's still a massive body of, of stuff that's never been published in any form absolutely so, yeah yeah it is it's it's both frustrating and exciting you know <laughs> i i just think that it's very important to be able to look at texts in their original you know in the original language this also this goes for uh, for all medieval texts actually all texts really if you can um it's not always feasible of course you know just to get a feel for the language and how things are said because if you just look at a translation of a text um you always miss things because yeah. a person if you're making a scholarly edition you generally wouldn't want to make a very literally tr or literary translation of a text yes. so yeah. you lose a lot of things like alliteration that's present in poetry yeah. when you're translating the text and the other hand if you give a very literary translation you might miss uh, the details the details of the text yeah. um, unless it's done very well uh, so for example Seamus Heaney's translation of Beowulf is excellent but you know not everybody is Seamus Heaney yeah so, <laughs> you know it, it's just much better to appreciate the text in, in the original form and so you can check what it says in the original and check it against the translation, see if yeah. it's reliable. But it means that, that uh, from the point of view of um, getting this stuff through to a wider public, um, there is room for both. There's room for the, the very literal, specific academic translation and the kind of the literary mm -hmm. interpretation. It's not just a question of getting, you know, a, a scholarly English translation mm -hmm. of it, you know, that the, there's more to it than just a kind of basic knowledge of what the words mean. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you know? we yeah. are dealing with literature and, um, you know, in literature, the form is as important as the content. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. I th and it's, it's, yeah, I think that's an important thing. Uh, it's an important point. And it's uh, people might not uh, be inclined to to pick up a scholarly edition of a text because yeah. they're not interested necessarily in how exactly I arrived at a dating of a text. Sure. Uh, they just want to read the text. So how do you see kind of current scholarship in getting through to that more general audience? What's the sort of the, the level within the wider public of understanding our material? Right. Um, I think uh, I think you could do different things. So mm -hmm. two things would really need to happen. And one of them is to give um, Irish studies a broader field of, of uh, you know, recognition and, and yeah. uh, in medieval studies in and of itself, because what you'll very often see is that not just Irish, but also Welsh, that Celtic texts are left out uh, of discussions because yeah. uh, because of the lack of editions and, and lack of accessibility and things like yeah. that. Um, so I think that could be improved. But if you look at a more general audience, I think it's important to... 
to communicate the stories to um, to a public. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on what your public would be. I think uh, if you want to educate people, it's important to to familiarize uh, children, for example, yeah, um, with the stories because I think it's it's absolutely vital for to have a love for the language and a love for the stories and that tends to work best I think if you uh, if you start young although of course there's no stopping you from appreciating it later yes Um, um, but I think you can do it and I think you can you can if you will translate the um, the scholarly works for a for a broader audience so what Mm -hmm. I've 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 tried to do that to an extent in some of my classes so last year I uh, gave students a text Tohal Brithna Dederga so the destruction of uh, Dederga's hostel yeah and told them to make a board game or a card game based on that so people could enjoy that so they had to take elements of the uh, of the text and so um, by having people play with the text in that way and and having a game based on that it might make them interested in the text itself yeah so that's that's one way in which you could uh you could approach that and of course you could also do it through um through stories i think there is a um now a modern series about kelpies or something like that uh that i haven't read uh, a young okay. adult fiction uh type thing so that's another uh another way and of course there's there's films so there's currently uh, i think a version of either the story of Kuchulin or Time Kuhlinger or something in production by um, uh, Michael Fassbender is involved, I think. Okay, yeah. See, I've been hearing that rumour for at least 15 years. I know, yes. And, you know, there's all this rumour about, oh, Brad Pitt will pay, play Kuchulin. Yes. Or, or <laughs> something like that. I think he's now a little bit too old, given that Kuchulin was, what, 17 when he bit it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's a tricky one because I'm kind of very ambivalent part of me goes yes of course we need you know a wider audience and these are as exciting as you know the the um greek stories that have been put on <laughs> film and so on but another part of me just cringes with horror to think what michael fassbender might do <laughs> to our stories it depends i think i think it's important to try you know, if you if you want to make these things interesting, try and stick to the actual original stories and don't yeah. leave out important elements. Like there was a film of Tristan and Isolde where they left out the love potion or or yeah. the Troy movie with Brad Pitt in it yes. where they left out the gods. That's yeah. You make a completely different story. Um, yeah. It's um, but it's it's it can be useful, I think, um, uh, in a way as a stepping stone to people. Yeah. To, to making the material more accessible. I know of someone who wasn't familiar with uh, classical literature who went to see the film Troy, and uh, he was asked afterwards, how long did he think the siege of Troy lasted? Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, oh, a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> film is not always the best medium for, you know, an epic spanning generations. <laughs> right. No, it's it's definitely, it's not, but it can, yeah. it can be... Um, you know, helpful in, in at least giving the people a first taste of, you know, a literature. Yeah, but I, I think in some ways, in order for that to happen, we need to have the good modern translations as well. Definitely, because, yes. You know, um, growing up in Ireland um, in primary school, you know, we had uh, uh, modern Irish as a, as a subject. And so we had Irish readers. And uh, that's my memory of the first time coming across the story of the children, children of Lear. Um, was in our Irish reader, mm-hmm. you know, but needless to say, it was simplistic. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, Children of Lear is not a story I've actually looked at. So I right. don't know 
you know, whether it's missing out massive chunks right. of uh, the actual tale, you know, I don't know whether it's giving it a, a slant where, of course, there's an evil stepmother, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and a grieving father. I don't know whether that's kind of a good representation right. of how I might read the text. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I was very influenced by a children's book uh, that we picked up in the wonderful Café Litherha in uh, Dingle, mm-hmm. um, which was a, a modern Irish version of Mira Nadine uh-huh. uh, in modern Irish, Mithra Nadine in, in old Irish. Um, and part of it was that the illustration was just so beautiful, you know. Yes. Um, and I do, I remember sort of my mother reading us a page and then giving us a translation uh, as bedtime stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it, it depends on the quality of, of the material that is generally available. Absolutely. You know? yeah. um, and, and that then filters into the, the, the newer reconstructions or the newer tellings or, right. uh, um, of the stories. So, you know, it's it's down to us scholars, I think, to, to put that foundation in place. Oh, definitely. I think and I think it's very important that, you know, you have people uh, involved who can look at the original text in, in translating it for a you know, making it available to a wider audience. So mm. um, that might not be everybody's um, cup of tea, but of course it's it's important to have people, you know, to make that step from, from yeah. academia to, uh, you know, to a non-academic setting. If you won the Euro millions tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you could sort of design a project which would fulfill that, mm-hmm. um, what what's your fantasy of what you would do? Um I would do many things, I think, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, what I would love to do is uh, uh, start up an institute that just focuses on translating texts. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, and editing them. But also <laughs> um, what I would really like to see is um, a translation for a non-academic setting, uh, but yeah. more in the sense of Jim Henson's The Storyteller, but then oh, yes. Irish myths. Oh, yes. Um, because they did Greek myths, so they might as yeah. well be Irish. So if I had uh, unlimited funds, um, yeah. I think I would try and do that. So um, just try and change a little bit the some of the um, views that there might exist about the language. Sure. Um, uh, but also to introduce it um to people who might not be familiar with it. So, for example, I would try and get it introduced in secondary schools as well. Yeah. Because um, I think you you might be able to do that in a setting in, you know, for example, private schools in, say, uh, the United States or something like that. Yeah. Um, as a, you know, as a specialist subject. Yeah. Um, they, have, they have programs in the Netherlands sometimes for schools for, um, uh, for advanced students. So this last year, um, there's somebody in the who works with medieval studies and mm-hmm. they um, took a medieval text and presented it as a, uh, a murder case, kind of like a CSI type thing. Oh, cool. Uh, and then they had a, a an actual trial um, where they had to look into medieval culture and things like that. So Excellent. it's a really good way to, to, to deal with, you know, to make the material more accessible and more exciting yeah. to, uh, to go into it and see yeah. that there's, you know, the practical application of it. Um, so things like that, I think, uh, cool. I would definitely fund. Um, I'm just trying trying to imagine back to um, a, a card game of the Togol for the Dodderga. And do do you have sort of gesh cards that act as a trump, or <laughs> how would that work? Um, well, uh, this was more of a um, a quartet game where you have to get four matching characters or yeah. things like that. Um, but we did have a board game 
that some students developed, which did have guest cards cool. uh, where people were not allowed to. You had to travel uh, around Ireland. And oh, yeah. uh, in the story, of course, the king isn't allowed to go either uh, right side or left side around Breg and the other side, either oh, left side or right side around Terra. Yeah. It would break one of his gesha or mm. gesa. So, um, you know, you might have a, a card where you couldn't go left around this one thing. So you had to take a longer route, things like that. Okay, um, cool. And actually, it was really great. We, we played the games, too, in class and the yeah. students are still using it in the introductory course. Oh, brilliant. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's really it's really helpful to have that. And then I had there was one other course where I had people uh, kind of reinterpret a text for a modern audience. And so oh, yeah. one of them looked at Manawidan Fab Hlir, uh, a Welsh yeah. text, um, and she kind of rewrote it as a as a diary, kind of in the horrible histories okay. <laughs> type of uh, book. Yeah. And another one rewrote Kiloch and Olwen, another Welsh text, as yeah. a... Uh, as a movie script. Oh, Janie Mac, that must have been an epic. It it was. <laughs> well, she didn't do the she didn't do the whole uh, <laughs> the whole thing. She more gave it treatment, but it was very interesting because she switched yeah. some things around and gave suggestions for the for the parts and things like that. It's an interesting uh, assignment to give to students because it makes them think about text in a different manner, and they they have to deal with the material uh, in a different way. So it makes them think about the text more, but also it helps to um, make the text available to you know, for, for a different audience. And sure. like so I yeah. like giving those types of um, assignments. I always wanted to give uh, an assignment where people had to rewrite a text in a different genre. So for example, oh, yeah. a soap series or something. <laughs> <laughs> Although so, I've never actually given that assignment yet. Um, with, with your Euro Millions, how would you produce something like that for Kath Megaturit as a tale? What format do you think would best suit it. It's uh, it's difficult to say. I think Kalf Moi um, uh might be good uh, as a Quentin Tarantino movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so you start off with you know the ending and then you go back. Um, yeah. Uh, so because there are different episodes that are yeah. uh, that you can recognize, and so you can you can play with those a bit. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of gore and violence, so I think <laughs> I think it would be an appropriate subject. <laughs> For if you if you had your millions, you could hire yeah. Quentin Tarantino to do this. So okay, <laughs> I'll put that out there to our listeners. Or have or have George R R Martin make a make a series out of it, like Thrones, <laughs> who would also be fabulous. Yes, well, you know that that'd be certainly something. I bet he'd jump out. Um, <laughs> we'll see what we could do. Well, if if our listeners out there have any thoughts or suggestions about um, you know what they do with their Euro Millions to uh, to bring our text to a wider audience, mm-hmm. um, they can leave a comment on this post. Um, but I think it's been absolutely great to talk to you, Ranka, as ever. Uh, but, <laughs> and you too. Uh, but also professionally, it's been a, a very interesting discussion. Um, and I hope that it's given our listeners a bit of an insight into what all this academic business is about and what's mm-hmm. involved and, and just how much there is left to do out oh, there. Yeah. You know, that that it's it's not all been done. You know, that mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot more still to do, still to discover. With that, I will urge our listeners to uh, order their copy of the Irish Text Society edition by Ranka de Vries, which mm-hmm. its full title is... Two texts on Loch Nechach, Dekaus Historie Gorgoche and Aydath Echach Macwarada. 
Excellent. Well, we'll put a link up anyway on this post. Um, so go and get your orders in straight away and we'll get it to the top of the bestseller list. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Then I, I might get some Euro millions and yeah, exactly. plan into effect. Brilliant. Brilliant. OK. Well, with that, I shall say thank you, Dr. De Vries, and uh, goodbye to all our listeners. Thank you very much, Isolde. Thank you for listening to Ogilaf Nanagas, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.